Hello, everyone. Welcome to the season finale of the Disrupting PFAS podcast. My name is Jeff Hale. I'm the Emerging Contaminants Practice Leader at Woodard and Curran, and I'll be your host today. Uh, today, we'll have a panel discussion with our guests from season one, uh, along with a live audience. Uh, the audience is encouraged to submit questions via chat and to take part in a few polls that will be posted during our session. For those of you who may be new to the topic, um, the subject today is PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which are a class of synthetic carbon-fluorine molecules that have been used in a variety of industries and applications due to their surfactant properties, their stability, ability to repel oil and water, among other characteristics. And this carbon-fluorine bond is extremely strong, making PFAS recalcitrant de to degradation. And their occurrence in the environment has resulted in scientific and regulatory focus of the, on these compounds. So as such, the focus of this Disrupting PFAS podcast is a detection, destruction, and sequestration of PFAS using novel materials and processes. We've had some great guests on this first season uh, who are active researchers and innovators in that space. Uh, so with that, I'd like to ask all of our panelists to introduce themselves, and I'd ask uh, Dr. Suzanne Witt to go first. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Suzanne Witt. I work at Fraunhofer USA um, as a staff scientist, and my research focus is on PFAS destruction with electrochemical oxidation and boron dope diamond electrodes. Thanks, Suzanne. Dr. Kurt Pennell. Hi, everyone. I'm Kurt Pennell. I'm a professor at Brown University, and my PFAS research focuses on uh, fate and transport processes and also remediation, in situ remediation. And for that work, we primarily are studying in situ sequestration, and we'll talk about that some later. Thank you, Kurt. Dr. Sarah Wu. Hi, everyone. So this is Sarah Wu uh, from University of Idaho. I'm, I'm a assistant professor at the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering. And my research is to develop plasma technologies for environmental remediation. So for PFAS, we're now treating PFAS by developing a continuous flow liquid phase plasma discharge process for destroying PFAS. Great, thank you, Sarah. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Radha Kishan Matkuri. Uh, hi everyone, uh, I'm Radhakrishnan Motkuri from Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. I'm a senior principal scientist here working on the PFAS uh, capture, sensors and destruction using various nanoporous materials. I'm working in this field from last 15 years in the PFAS space, working on the uh, PFAS uh, capture, destruction and sensors. Great, thank you, Radha. So I think the audience uh, can tell we've got a great panel here. Uh, they've all been great guests on the podcast and I'd like to thank you all once again uh, for your continued participation. So I'd like to get going with the panel discussion and um, I think we'll start talking about the ex situ destruction and treatment technologies. I know uh, Suzanne and Sarah have uh, been focused in these areas in particular. Um, so I'll start with Sarah. Um, Sarah, could you please describe for the audience what plasma is, how it works, and maybe a few examples from nature? Sure. So basically, um, 
I think all of you have heard of plasma. It's basically defined as the fourth state of matters, right? That usually produced from a gas phase with either extremely high temperature or intensive energy input. So the materials are, will be ionized and enter a plasma state, uh, which is full of electrons, uh, charged particles, reactive species, and also produce other hybrid physical and chemical effects such as UV, electrofield, and shock waves, acoustic waves, all of these effects can be used for accelerating uh, chemical reactions. So you can find plasma everywhere in nature, um, the fire, and you see the sun, you, when you see northern light, and even lightning is a typical plasma discharge. Uh, they are known as hot plasma. and uh, actually, over 99% of the matter in the universe is in the plasma state. Uh, also, you know, the applications of artificial plasma in our daily lives, including lighting, uh, fluorescent lights are plasmas, plasma TV, plasma cutter, um, and ozone generator. Um, they are producing plasma either in the gas phase or in vacuum. Thanks, Sarah. Um, you know, when we talked originally, I, you know, I, I had heard of plasma. I knew how it was being used for PFAS, but I didn't know that it was actually so common in commercial uh, applications and as well as in nature. So I think that's a really informative uh, description for our audience. Um, could you talk a little more about um, the technology you're working with? Maybe you know how it's unique, in particular, um, the liquid phase plasma discharge process. Sure, uh, let me start with a little bit of background of plasma technology for the PFAS dis uh, destruction. Simply put, you can imagine it as the, uh, we just uh, are manipulating the artificial lightning. So it's using uh, the chemical and the physical features produced with the plasma discharge to break the chemical bonds, such as carbon-carbon uh, like bonds, carbon-fluorine bonds that you mentioned, and decompose the PFAS compounds in water to the non-toxic forms. So attacking by highly um, energetic and reactive species in plasma, such as hydroxyl radicals and uh, electrons. Ideally, the multiple fluorines on the PFAS molecules are cut off from the uh, carbon backbone and become fluoride ions in water. And this is how plasma achieves the destruction of PFAS fast and without harsh chemical conditions because the generation of plasma can be operated under room temperature and the atmospheric pressure with uh, basically no or very little chemicals uh, or a catalyst added. So we can say uh, it's a green technology. That's why there's a lot of research interest in developing uh, plasma technologies for um, PFAS disruption. Well, uh, so currently the different plasma approaches are being developed in terms of plasma reactor design, there are pin-to-pin, pin-to-plate, um, dielectric barrier type, and, and um, other types of discharge like Corolla, um, spark, gliding arc produced in gas phase or liquid phase. So the most challenging um, for plasma technology is to produce stable plasma in a liquid matrix. 
because we're basically want to uh, treat waters. Um, so most of the working plasma processes have to discharge, produce the discharge in gas phase and then contact it with water for water and wastewater treatment. Um, and scale up is not easy while the reactor gets bigger, it's harder to control. And there's also stable plasma discharge is very hard to maintain. And also the complete treatment of the whole batch is hard to achieve too, since plasma is produced just between the electrodes, while if you use a big tank, um, it's hard to treat completely the whole batch. So as for our uh, process, the uniqueness is uh, that the continuous flow liquid phase plasma discharge reactor that we designed to engineer the plasma discharge for directly handling and treating the liquid matrix with the PFAS contamination. We can do it with or without gas. Um, and that was the first endeavor that um, achieves, achieves a continuous liquid phase treatment instead of batch treatment for uh, PFAS. So this design um, is just working like a, like a plasma filter that, that produces plasma discharge right on spot at, the, at a small channel that uh, provides focused treatment for the liquid continuously uh, when the liquid is continuously pumping through and that guarantees any part of the liquid flowing through the channel will be treated uniformly. So the continuous operation uh, also means that the reactor size can be more compact, easier to control, and also simplifies the scale-up process without a very big capital cost for the equipment. So that's um, about my process and the plasma technology. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate you uh, sharing those details. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, very interesting and um, just an interesting transition from you know the occurrence of plasma and commercial products in nature, like you described, and how you're focusing it on PFAS. Um, you know, with that, I want to transition it over to Suzanne because Suzanne's working on um, ex situ treatment destruction of PFAS using electrochemical oxidation. So I think you know similar objectives, uh, maybe some similarities. Um, with the destructive process, but uh, nonetheless a different technology. So uh, Suzanne, could you please describe for the audience um, electrochemical oxidation and how it works to destroy PFAS? Yeah, sure. Um, so with electrochemical oxidation, we're taking a set of electrodes, so a cathode and an anode, um, and we're putting that into a solution and we're applying a current um, to those electrodes. And so when we apply currents that um, are, or current density that is sufficiently high enough, um, we can start breaking those uh, carbon fluoride bonds of PFAS molecules. And there's a couple of different mechanisms that are coming into play here. So um, we talk about direct and indirect oxidation processes. So in a, in a direct oxidation, um, what's happening is that PFAS molecule is migrating to the surface of the anode and loses an electron um, and so becomes oxidized that way. Um, there's also indirect oxidation that's happening at the same time. And what that is, is um, when you're at 
these higher current densities and potentials, you're also splitting water molecules. And when you split water, you generate some of these radical species, um, which is this similar to what Sarah was talking about, where you have hydroxyl radicals and solvate electrons and things like that. Um, so those those species are also reactive. And so um, you know, just a, a little bit away from the electrode surface, more in the bulk solution, you can have um, indirect oxidation of those carbon fluoride bonds as well. And what we we think at the moment is that both of these processes are important um, for overall PFAS um, uh, degradation. And with electrochemical oxidation, it usually goes through this chain shortening process. So if you start with the longer, say, a C8 chain, um, you'll you'll shorten that chain one carbon at a time um, until you get to the constituents, which are, are CO2 and fluoride um, anions. So also similar to what Sarah was saying, we're trying to generate those those fluoride anions to show that um, we've totally uh, ripped apart that PFAS molecule. Thanks, Suzanne. So I think that's a great that was a great opportunity to kind of compare and contrast um, both of your technologies, plasma treatment and electrochemical oxidation. I think a lot of people may have heard of, heard of these, uh, know a little bit about them, but it's nice to hear them uh, compared and contrast like that. So thanks for that description. I think you're teeing me up uh, for our first poll question, which will be coming up in a little bit. Um, but sticking with Sarah and Suzanne, um, the next thing I wanted to talk about um, are the electrical requirements of your two technologies. Um, so if you could talk about the electrical requirements um, and you know what are some of the key electrical parameters that you look at or perhaps adjust to optimize it. Um, I'd like to hear from both of you, but uh, whoever wants to go first or I'll pick on someone. Sarah, would you mind going first? Yeah, I'll go first. Well, uh, for plasma, basically you will need the high electric voltage okay, to initiate the high electric field to keep the plasma discharge or initiate that and keep the plasma discharge happening. But that doesn't mean um, it needs a lot of electric power to run because um, unlike Suzanne's technology, uh, the current flow in plasma technology is not that high. So the our process uh, for PFAS, uh, the PFAS can we found that it can be broken down pretty well, taking about one to two kilovolt and a hundred watt or even lower, which is easier, which is easily provided with universally universal power supply, AC supply, and a high voltage transformer. And we, when um, treating different matrices with different uh, electric conduct, uh, electric conductivity and flow rate, we need adjust the applied voltage and power, which needs to be optimized for the specific scenarios. So that's the, what we basically need for um, plasma to treat PFAS. Okay, um, so basically, um, if you have a universal power source of electrical supply with the high voltage transformer, you'd be able to run the plasma? Okay. Yes. Thanks. And Suzanne? Yeah, so um, as Sarah mentioned, we, we look more at the current. Um, and so one parameter that we optimize pretty frequently is the current density. And so that's just the, the current divided by the anode area. Um, 
And so in terms of what, what are the power requirements um, or then or the um, current requirements, that, that's, that's dictated by what current density you're trying to achieve and then the area of your electrodes. Um, so if you have a smaller area electrode, then you can get the same current density at a lower applied current. Um, so we look at all those things. So in terms of how much energy we're consuming during the process, it, it's, it has to do with what current density we want to apply, um, what is the geometry of our electrodes. So we have a couple of different, um, uh, different geometry electrode sets that we experiment with, and we think that um, some uh, one electrode geometry that has a very high surface area might be better for really concentrated PFAS solutions because you have more um, uh, electrode area to work with. Whereas we have another cell that I, I discussed in, in my episode of the podcast that has a lower surface area, but better mass transfer kinetics. And so that one seems to be better for um, more dilute PFAS or lower concentration PFAS solutions. Um, so, um, yeah, we look at those things. Um, the solution conductivity is also important for our process. So a lot of, um, some of the wastewaters that we've looked at are very conductive just because there's all sorts of different dissolved salts that are present. Um, and in that case, we can, um, get to the current density, densities that we want without having to apply a, a really high voltage. Um, but in other uh, solutions like groundwater, for example, might not be as conductive. And so in that case, we might want to add a salt um, in order to be able to go to these higher currents without having to drive the voltage up too high um, uh, and, and increasing the energy consumption that way. Um, and yeah, in general, we can use um, commercially available power supplies. So like um, a lot of our our sort of bench level experiments or use about 10 amps of power um, to get to the current densities that we want. Um, so yeah, so at the moment it, it's uh, nothing special in terms of uh, high, high uh, current power supplies. Okay, excellent Suzanne. Uh, mm -hmm. so yes, I think it's important to appreciate some of the electrical requirements and some of those key um, electrical parameters that you look at, such as the, the current density with electrochemical oxidation. Um, you know, so I guess the, the final prepared question I have for both Suzanne and Sarah um, is involving uh, technologies that are available or coming to market that you know concentrate PFAS so resulting in a small volume of water that's you know highly concentrated with PFAS I mean there's certain technologies out there that can do that it's very beneficial but ultimately you still need to deal with that small volume high concentration and I'm curious to know how your technologies uh, may be suited uh, for dealing with those types of waste, um, especially, um, you know, I think Sarah, you said you know, there gets to be a point where scale up can be challenging, uh, but you know maybe you don't need to scale up. Maybe you need to scale down the volume you're dealing with. So the theme I'm going with is you know complementary technologies. So Suzanne, would you mind uh, taking a stab at that one first? How uh, electrochemical oxidation could possibly be used to uh, treat low volume, high concentrate solutions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, um, yeah, you, you hit on it with the, the scale up. I think that this is gonna be um, uh, crucial for, for scaling up a technology like this, just you know, simply getting, well, in scaling up, reducing the volume that, that needs to be treated. 
Um, and in order to, to do that, use some sort of pre-concentration technology. Um, I did provide our paper on ion exchange solutions, um, so that, that sh there should be a link available to that. So we have looked at um, some of these really concentrated um, uh, PFAS solutions, and, and electrochemical oxidation works really well for those. Um, and that is that puts us at an advantage because the 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 higher your PFAS concentration and the less um, uh, concentration of co-contaminants that you have in there, well, that helps the the electrochemical process to really focus on PFAS destruction. Because what happens is we're at these high current densities that I mentioned, which are are high enough to degrade PFAS compounds. But then anything that can be oxidized at a lower energy, that's going to be oxidized along with the PFAS. And so these are sort of these side reactions that could go on that um, lower the efficiency of your process. So um, absolutely pairing um, this electrochemical degradation with a pre-concentration step or uh, some separation step, I think, is definitely the key to moving forward. Okay, thanks, Suzanne. And mm -hmm. Sarah, your thoughts on coupling plasma treatment with some of these concentrating technologies? Yeah, um, I would say similarly, it's really wise to integrate the concentrating technologies with plas plasma process so that plasma can be focused on destruction um, because, you know, based on the mechanism of PFAS destruction by plasma, um, similarly, high concentration is supposed to improve the energy efficiency in terms of energy input for a unit mass of PFAS destroyed. So um, although the, this is still research needed to determine the highest concentration of PFAS can be handled by plasma treatment or can uh, successfully produce plasma in, the potential for the plasma technology to treat the concentrated uh, and low volume is very promising. And uh, most ongoing research is, uh, is still using relative low pro uh, PFAS concentration uh, from PPB, PPT level up to probably 100 ppm. Uh, and for our process, based on our limited trial, we have successfully handled PFAS solution even with 1-2% of PFAS, which means 20,000 ppm. It, I think it may even go higher. Uh, with that level that we can we can handle, yeah. So it depends on what the the needs of the concentrated flow that comes. So twenty thousand ppm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's exciting. All right. Um, so yeah, that's exciting to know that uh, there's a few technologies available that could be coupled with some others. Um, you know, for, you know, total destruction. And again, I said it before, but uh, it is interesting to see the two technologies, plasma and electrochemical oxidation, um, you know, discussed side by side like that. I think that's uh, pretty interesting. Um, so at this point, I would like to remind and encourage the live audience to submit any questions in the question chat. Um, I'm scanning for those from time to time. We'll probably, um, get, uh, we'll probably cover those at the end, but I might toss them out there as we go. So again, encouraging the audience to submit 
uh, questions. Uh, Suzanne made reference to uh, some of her publications, and I'll also remind the audience that there are a few handouts um, in the menu on the right-hand side that you can download, including uh, some of Suzanne and her team's work with electrochemical oxidation. And at this stage, I'd like our uh, producer Jeannie Dudley to post the first poll question and I think uh, Suzanne you gave a pretty good segue to this when you uh, talked about uh, basically breaking down the PFAS molecules or breaking them in half to you know shorter chains so Jeannie if you could pre please bring up the first poll question So this is a very technology-focused discussion today, but I think as context, it's important to consider um, you know, the regulatory environment and with the prospect of PFOS and PFOA specifically uh, being classified as hazardous substances uh, under CERCLA, uh, is a partial destruction of PFOS and PFOA to other, say, shorter chain PFAS a viable treatment approach. So I'd appreciate if the audience could chime in here. Uh, the other members of the audience cannot see your response, uh, but I'd be curious to know uh, the audience's um, perspective on this. Uh, so if you can take a moment, moment to complete the poll and I'm gonna be scanning for any questions that came in. All right, so here are the results. Uh, so again, if PFOS and PFOA are classified as hazardous substances under CERCLA, um, and I'm paraphrasing the question here, is partial destruction of those compounds considered a viable treatment approach? Um, this is about probably the result I was expecting. Um, you know, we're, we'd basically be cutting, you know, breaking those molecules down to other PFAS that were no longer PFOS and PFOA, um, and you know, I suppose technically would not be considered hazardous substances under the law, um, but you know that's not necessarily the end of it. So, 57% of you feel that um, that would be a viable treatment approach to basically transform the molecules from PFOS and PFOA, um, and 43%, also almost half. Uh, didn't quite feel that way. So thank you for participating in the poll. Um, and I, we'll move on to our next uh, set of questions. So we're switching gears here. I'd like to thank Suzanne and Sarah for the robust discussion on some of those ex situ treatment technologies. And uh, thanks to Kurt and Rodha for being patient. Uh, any of you feel free to chime in at any point. We wanna keep this conversational, but I would like to turn our attention to in situ remediation. Um, so we are seeing encouraging progress in the development of PFAS treatment and destruction technologies, but personally I see a gap in in situ remediation options and I think this is something that's highly desirable to industry. So uh, to Kurt could, you, Kurt, could you please talk about the prospect of in situ remediation options for PFAS? Okay, thanks Jeff. Um, so my perspective on this is that we're at a point where it's really difficult to break down these compounds, even ex situ. So then transferring that in situ is is a, a another challenge with all the mass transfer and doing things uh, 
downhole or in situ. So a lot of the work that I think initially was the focus was has been on sequestration. So how can we take a dilute plume, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> concentrate it, um, and then perhaps in the future, there'll be a technology that can treat this uh, concentrated mass. Um, so that's one way to look at it. Um, there is some work going on now with thermal treatment, but again, this is really you know energy intensive. So there is some um, work with uh, basically smoldering technologies and, and in-situ thermal treatment to remove PFAS and then capture them um, in a gas phase and then condense them. So th there is some work in that arena, but the actual transformation with a, a chemical method or for example, a plasma method that Sarah might be working on, to do that in situ is, is really a challenge. So I think in the short term, we'll see a lot of focus on sequestration. Um, and then in the longer term, how do we apply a destructive technology to that concentrated uh, mass that we may have been able to sequester in the subsurface? Um, and one of the challenges we face even with sequestration is a shorter chain uh, PFAS species generally don't work well with activated carbon. So then we have to modify our materials. Um, and we've been working with resins and there's opportunities for nanomaterials that are injectable um, in the subsurface. And so one of our main focuses is how do we deliver um, these materials to the subsurface? And in the future, of course, it could be a reactive material that absorbs and reacts with the, with the, these compounds. Uh, but our sort of niche in this area is how do we deliver these materials in situ? And it's sort of a balance between, um, you want them to be mobile in the subsurface. So you don't want them to plug up a well, but you don't want them to be too mobile. So you want to create a, a reactive zone or, or a adsorptive zone that, you know, you might have a radius in it of influence of a couple meters, but you don't want it to go 100 meters because you just lose control of the material. So a lot of what we work on is how to balance that um, delivery, but also get retention. Um, and so that's a that's a sort of a they're kind of competing things, um, competing concepts, I guess. And we try to balance, find a, a balance between those two where we can handle the material, deliver it, but it also retains on the subsurface to create this reactive zone. And that's that's sort of where we're headed with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities there. I do think it will take time to get the um, technologies for destruction in situ. That's really where the, 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 that's sort of the holy grail, of course. And you look at chemical technologies or biological, um, it's, it's really a challenge because obviously the carbon fluorine bond is very difficult to break down. Yeah, so I agree with you, Kurt. It'll probably take time to be able to take those destructive technologies in situ. As you point out, um, uh, you know, they're still in development. You know, for instance, Suzanne and Sarah have made, you know, great progress to demonstrate those, but to put them underground is probably a ways off. But I think your approach, um, you know, focusing on sequestration now buys us time, perhaps. Um, so I like how you put that, you know, maybe we can sequester it today and destroy it tomorrow. Um, and again, it gets back to these, uh, you know, coupling of technologies, even if it occurs over time. Um, so could you expand on, you know, some of the 
challenges or techniques um, for basically delivering some of these sortive type materials into the subsurface and your research there? Yeah, so we've done a lot of work with nanomaterials over the last um, 10, 15 years, um, looking a lot at faded transport and also reactivity. So one of the key things is, um, I think with, to have this be practically usable is to, um, we have to take a material that we know is in this case, sorptive or reactive, um, but we don't want it to cost too much. And so we need to basically create a stable suspension that we can inject. So if we work with carbon, um, it's not too difficult to, to basically finally divide that and stabilize it in, a, in different polymers. Um, resins are a little more difficult. And then when you develop nanomaterials, you're almost going the other direction where we may develop nanomaterials that are, are too mobile and we need to make them sort of uh, a little bit larger or, or have the ability to um, absorb onto or attach onto the, the soil particles. Um, so those are the types of things that or the challenge we look at. And it sort of gets again at this balance between mobility um, and retention and understanding that the mechanisms that drive that um, and how you can modify that um, in situ. And, and especially when you're dealing with a heterogeneous media um, where you might have different, you know, high permeability zones and low permeability zones, how do you address uh, mobility control when you're trying to deliver um, these types of materials? So the, those are, that's probably one of the biggest challenges um, and also getting the materials at low enough cost that we can actually inject, you know, 500 gallons into the ground and it doesn't cost us a fortune to, to do that. One other area that's, or one other approach, you know, we're working on injecting and creating a barrier um, or reactive zone where we have flow through the porous media, right? So one thing you have to be really careful about is if you put these materials in and they block the pore space and reduce the permeability, you'll just get bypassing. And so you may take a sample down gradient and there's no, no mass, but it's simply because the flow bypassed is now bypassing uh, your, your reactive zone. Um, so a key thing we worry about is maintaining permeability. So we want the particles or whatever we put it, inject to coat the pores, to coat the soil, not block the pores. That's a key thing. So if you have pore blockage, that's not going to get you anywhere in a, in a sense. You, it'll cause a, a low permeability zone. You'll just get bypassing. So um, that's one of the key things we worry about. We want things to basically attach onto the surface, but not do any pore clogging. And that, again, that's, this gets at that fine line between mobility and attachment. <clears throat> and that's how you, how you adjust that. Um, that's the key, I think, in terms of developing effective uh, in situ delivery of these types of materials, whatever they might be. So um, there might be nanomaterials, it might be carbon, it might be resin, but whatever it is, you have to make sure it doesn't block the pore space because then you're, you'll just shut down the flow. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the prior episode and my response was, as a hydrogeologist, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, we don't want to clog the aquifer or, or do any harm that way, but um, you, you were able to look at that or analyze that adherence to the aquifer particles with, um, was it a scanning electron microscope imagery? Yeah, so we, we do, we do uh, sort of an array of different experiments in the laboratories or sort of treatability tests 
um, we do column studies, we do active cell studies. But then after we inject, what we do is we take the materials out, we destructively sample, and we can actually look at, we can actually um, mount the particles and then look at the materials on the surface and actually scan them. So you get an SEM image, but you also get the um, elemental composition. So you can tell if it's, you know, if you have a whole bunch of carbon on the surface, all of a sudden you can see that it's carbon. Or if you put an iron nanomaterial, for example, you'll see a spike in iron as you scan across a, a region of the surface. So that's one way we um, get at that. Obviously in the field, um, when we've injected, uh, you know, nanoscale carbon, we you can put a put a, a probe down and just if it turns black you know you're you're in a you've treated the zone <laughs> so it's a little bit easier but of course we want to look at the fundamental mechanisms to how much coating we're on the surface and and <clears throat> you know are we coating the entire surface or are we partially coating the surface and again the focus is really we want to coat the surface but not block the pore space so it's really important to do um, you know tracer tests those types of experiments to make sure that your flow is still um, what you expect it to be in the zone that you've treated. So I I love the uh, direct proof. Um, you know whether it's you know looking at you know the color of it or you know getting right down there to the microscopic scale. And uh, <clears throat> again, take the opportunity to remind the audience. Um, so I think we have one of your papers also in the attachments, Kurt, that uh, talks more about some of this. So I'd encourage the audience to download that. And I think there's actually some of that microscopy in there, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So um, I want to thank Radha for being patient to this point, uh, okay. but I'd like to bring him into the conversation because, um, you know, Radha, you've been focused on uh, nanoporous materials. Uh, we're going to talk more about how they can be used for PFAS detection, um, but you know they also play a role in sequestration. So could you chime into the conversation here and talk about nanoporous materials uh, for PFAS sequestration and as well as, well as their potential for um, in-situ or, or subsurface application? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Uh... Uh, coming to the in-situ sequestration, I completely agree with Kurt because the destruction itself ex situ is very uh, energy consuming process like as Susan Asara mentioned, right? So the sequestration is the right point It is uh, uh, right now. But the question is that when you are sequestering uh, sequestration uh, of these PFAS molecules, uh, one thing is not pore blockage. But at the same time, we have when we see, is it like a physical adsorption or chemical adsorption? Meaning that whether it can stay for a long time. If not, what happens with the geological conditions? It may come out from that sorbent or nanomaterial, whatever the material, and again it goes into the water. So then again the problem starts. So it's a cycle. So it is a question of how can we uh, increase the strength between the PFAS molecule and the guest uh, and the host of nanomaterials, nanoporous materials, or anything, so that under the geolog geological conditions, nothing can come out. But we recently we also started thinking about under the geological conditions like temperature, pressure, and uh, water, uh, all those things. Can we do the catalysis there? Meaning that can we destruct in situ using 
nanoporous material because nanoporous materials are well reported from so many decades about the catalysis. Though CF bond is very strong compared to CC bond. So, and, and of course, we have, this is challenges doing the same destruction in situ at uh, in the geological conditions in the ground at room temperature or a little bit higher temperature is very challenging. But there are methods or things that we can think of, like how can we capture huge amount of the PFAS molecules and uh, make, making them a chemical adsorption rather than physical adsorption, meaning that they may not come out easily, then start doing some chemistry on the catalysis chemistry on the uh, interaction so that down the road, by the time the PFOS will come out from the, from the material, it may be already de degraded into a small pieces or like a, a CF bond breakage or CC bond breakage or something like that so that it may not come back into the water. So it's a big challenge, of course, I agree, but um, like as I mentioned in the podcast, there is a, like a collaboration between the a catalysis expert, a material expert, and all those people may def definitely helpful. And uh, also uh, working with a um, subsurface science specialist in PNNL about understanding the conditions of uh, uh, the ground and the sequestration place what how how far we can go and what are the conditions the everything because the thing is that the adsorption and the release will work on the ph work on the uh, temperature everything will affect on the uh, adsorption desorption release right so we have to have a proper understanding of that so we started thinking about this direction recently and hopefully this is a big challenge we can we can tackle in the near future thanks for the perspective on that um, it's, you know, I think you've brought good perspective so that everyone does need to understand that, you know, there's a, a number of variables um, the affect PFAS absorption you know, and their ultimate destruction. It's a little more challenging to characterize those in the subsurface, but um, I would agree that, you know, if we bring enough technical disciplines together, um, you know, that we can, we can solve for that. So thanks for your input there, Radha. Um, I would want to let the audience know that I'm seeing your questions. We're getting a few good questions in. Uh, the ones we're getting right now um, would be best for uh, Suzanne and Sarah, and we'll be getting back to them in a little bit with those questions. Um, at this point, though, I think I'd like to go to our next poll question. So, Jeannie, if you could pull up the next poll question. <clears throat> So I'm sticking with the theme of um, the anticipation of PFOS and PFOA being listed as hazardous substances under CERCLA and the ramifications of that. In this case, um, I would like to know the audience's opinion. Will that put greater emphasis on destructive and in-situ treatment technologies, um, assuming that uh, disposal options will become will be uh, more difficult. So I'm gonna uh, ask uh, some questions of Suzanne and Sarah, and you can be thinking on them, and uh, then we'll get back to you after the poll. But some questions we're getting in for Suzanne and Sarah. 
um, kind of combining them together. But what do you what do you see as the busy, busy the biggest obstacles or roadblocks to overcome uh, or move these PFAS destruction technologies to full scale and made available commercially? So we have a couple questions along those lines. We don't have to answer at the moment, but uh, the audience is interested in knowing um, you know what are the the potential for scalability of some of these destructive technologies. So if you could uh, think on that for a moment, and we'll get back to you both. Uh, but again, we're interested to know, I guess we've completed the poll. Um, and Jeannie, if you could pull up the results. So again, uh, the, the idea here being uh, assuming that PFOS and PFOA are listed as hazardous substance is under CERCLA. I would anticipate uh, disposal options um, might get more difficult and few and far between, and that would put uh, more emphasis on destructive and in-situ remediation technologies. Um, so we had a few people that strongly disagreed. Um, most people agreed and uh, and about a third of the people strongly agreed. So the vast majority of people um, agree or strongly agree that um, classification of PFOS and PFOA is hazardous substances would put even more emphasis on the need for destructive um, in, in situ treatment technologies. Um, I would count myself um, in that group, uh, but it's also interesting to know that um, not everybody thinks so and at least 8% uh, of the audience um, strongly disagreed. So thanks for um, taking part in that poll. Um, I think uh, I think it's an interesting topic to combine you know, the regulatory climate uh, with some of this groundbreaking research that our pan panelists are doing. Um, all right, so I'm gonna kick it back to Suzanne and Sarah <clears throat> uh, with the audience question. Again, wanting to know, you know some of the obstacles or roadblocks or what it's gonna take um, to scale up um, electrochemical oxidation and plasma treatment to be, you know, commercially readily, commercially ready and available. And I think um, we kind of talked about it a little bit um, by, um, you know, maybe it's not so much a matter of scaling it up, but it's a matter of scaling down and concentrating what you need to treat. So hopefully, I didn't steal your answer, but I'd still be interested in hearing your your response. Um, and if, Suzanne, if you could go. I think that the, the key thing is to pair it with some um, sort of technology that can concentrate PFAS and reduce the volume of water that needs to be treated um, because there's a very, very high volumes of water out there that are contaminated with PFAS. Um, and so that, that's absolutely going to be key. Um, another thing that I thought of, and this, this goes back to the, the poll question that was just put up, is that uh, treatment goals can kind of be a moving target. So, you know, it, it, and that depends on what the regulations are. Um, and as new toxicology data comes out for these different compounds, um, that that plays into what, you know, what, yeah, what which PFAS compounds people want to degrade and then, you know, by how much. And so, so when, how do you design a system when the goal is kind of shifting um, you know, as you're doing it, I think that's that's a big challenge too. So it's just something that, you know, as we move on, we have to um, adapt to. And and really, the the immediate answer I have for that for an EO system is just the time. So if you want to treat, uh, you know, a wider array of PFAS compounds to a lower concentration, then you know, it, in general, treatment times are going to increase. 
Um, so that's something that we have to consider for, for scaling up. Thanks, Suzanne. And Sarah, your response? So I would say um, I mentioned the several obstacles for, at least for the plasma technology was, um, you know, we didn't, because there was not enough research yet to find out uh, either if it's energy efficient enough, cost efficient enough, or even we didn't achieve uh, the complete treatment or complete removal of PFAS from the water yet. So more research is needed and also high volume, um, you know, big batch uh, is, is difficult to complete treatment. That's all the challenges right now we're facing and we do need more research to find out the uh, real answer to when the technology is going to be um, ready for uh, either scale up or commercialization. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Sarah. Um, this has given me a lot to think about, and uh, I'd like to share my thoughts and maybe tie a few themes together. Um, you know, I like what you said, Suzanne, about um, you know regulatory criteria being a bit of a moving target. I mean, those are important because they're health protective. Um, but you know, you know, as a hydrogeologist, my mind goes to if our health protective uh, regulatory criteria become more and more stringent, how much more volume of water, or how much more volume of groundwater are we dealing with? And I can tell you from my own research, um, it's pretty sensitive. You know, a small change in a regulatory criterion can mean a much greater volume or distance of impacted groundwater per se. But then I start thinking about, you know, combining these technologies. Um, you know, maybe there's, you know, extraction and destructive treatment in the source zone. Um, but then the things that Kurt and Radha are working on, you know, in situ sequestration over this much broader area or volume of groundwater, say, um, come into play to stabilize things. And, you know, maybe eventually uh, we could be looking at, um, you know, in, in situ destructive approach. And I think those are, uh, on the horizon. Um, so those are, that's my perspective, and I think it ties into some of the themes we keep talking about in this toolbox approach uh, of combining technologies together. So thanks and for, go ahead. I just want to add one point here, like as both Susan and Sarah, they want the high concentration mm -hmm. where uh, we can have uh, like a nanoprus materials for extraction uh, selectively of these PFAS molecules and can give them a concentrated solution of PFAS for the destruction. That's what we discussed recently in the collaboration projects, what we can work with uh, Susan and Sarah and Kurt. So the combining technologies definitely help. Hey, good stuff, Radha. Thank you for chiming in on that. I'm going to take a quick check to see if we have any other questions coming in. Um, no other questions at the moment, but I uh, would encourage the audience to submit questions. We'd like to keep it um, as interactive as possible and give you uh, access to our guests. Um, with that, uh, we're going to switch gears again, and we're going to talk more about PFAS sensing and technologies and treatment of other media. And I'd like to put you on the hot seat, Radha. Um, and I think this is more in your area. So 
could you please, I'm really excited about the, uh, the PFAS sensor that is being worked on at PNNL. And could you please talk about the FAST PFAS st uh, sensor specifically? How could it, well, if you give us an overview and, I'm, I'm, and I, then I'll have a few follow-up questions. Uh, sure, Jeff. So actually this is not uh, only from PNNL. This is a collaborative effort from uh, Pacific PNNL and also New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT. Professor Basure from there and his team. Uh, so we uh, this started for, uh, at least five, six years back when uh, I collaborator in, in the PNPNL, uh, past PNL employee, Dr. Chatterjee and uh, Dr. Basure and we together discussed about the technology like uh, coming from different expertise. So for example, Basure is coming from electrochemical side or uh, 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 I'm coming from material side and Dr. Chatterjee is coming from different uh, sensor side. So why can't we discuss uh, and together to combine the technologies? That's the, that's the basis for this uh, uh, PFAS sensor. So that's how the sensor works is that, for example, if you understand a problem right now before going to the sensor, uh, it is very expensive methodology to detect at this point of time. You have to take the sample, send it to a, a laboratory and uh, wait for a week or two and each and four hundred dollars to five hundred dollars sample, and you'll get the concentration. Oh my God! Okay, this is the this is the big problem. So when we are uh, previously started working on the different kind of sensors, the problem is different where the sensors we are working at the parts per million level, ppm level, uh, because PNL is uh, located on the Hanford side, you know, on northwest side, and uh, there are a lot of contaminants. You can there are a lot of sensitive, sensitive technologies, but those are all working at ppm level. But when you go to uh, PFAS, completely scenario is different, parts per trillion level. So the regular sensing methodologies like optical, simple chemical may not help helpful. So with our discussions we, uh, uh, and improvements back and forth multiple times, we could able to get this sensor uh, in a combination of the materials and microfluidics and impedance analyzer and all those things together and how we can work on the, the fluidity and uh, how can we uh, uh, work on the exchange of these host case interactions and uh, all those things together. Now we are able to have a PFAS sensor that can detect um, uh, PFAS concentration as low as 0.5 parts per trillion, which is very low, which is uh, close to the same technology, XC2 technologies like mass spectra or other TOP, other technologies. So we were able to see the PFOS, one of the major contaminant on, in PFAS family. We could able to go 0.5 PPT. And even with PFOA, we could able to go parts per trillion level. So these two are really uh, major contaminants as all of you know. So uh, uh, so how the technology works. So uh, what and what is the status you ask me, right? So we started working uh, from last five years, I think six years. So at this point of time, if you ask me the same question last year, we would have said that there is a technology, we have the materials and we we have, will send the information to the, the materials to our, our collaborator at NJIT, where they will test the PFAS sensor. But at the end of the day, if you look at the sensor, it is like covering all, almost half of the lab space, which is a big problem. So you cannot go into the field if I want to. So that was a major hurdle. 
So what we did is that with internal resources in PNNL with uh, uh, multiple electrical engineers and other including software engineer, we are now uh, bringing this technology of the PFAS sensor, which is covering almost half of the lab space into a small prototype, which is I can hold in my hand and with my back within a laptop in my backpack, I can go into the field and get the same exact sensing of the PFAS molecule. That is our aim. Hopefully by end of September, this fiscal year, we are able to demonstrate a robust PFAS prototype sensor. Thanks, Radha. I think that's very exciting. You know, we have a lot of emphasis on, you know, treatment, destruction, and dealing with PFAS, but knowing <clears throat> where it is in a very low concentration, almost instantaneously, I think that's, you know, huge um, for addressing PFAS. Um, you know, I could envision several use cases for that type of technology, whether it's a, it'll, a water supply system under someone's kitchen sink or you know taking it out in the field to you know characterize things real time um, so i'm excited to hear more about uh, the development of the prototype um, thanks for acknowledging uh, NG njit's involvement in it um, and let's see i think i'm going to stick with you radha and but we're going to switch gears a bit <clears throat> And in our prior discussions, uh, you made me aware of the prospect of using um, some of these nanoporous materials um, you know, for, to address stack emissions to remove PFAS. So if, hopefully I'm summing this up correctly, but you're using nanoporous materials in a lot of exciting ways from using it as a medium for detection uh, mm -hmm. to sequestration potentially in groundwater or other aqueous media. But I think you mentioned to me the prospect of using it uh, to scrub PFAS from stack emissions. And I think that's really important because I know there's increasing regulatory emphasis on uh, PFAS and stack emissions. You know, incineration is a potentially viable means of destroying PFAS. Um, but, you know, there's a few questions that still need to be addressed, uh, such as, you know, off gas. Hopefully I'm not taking your answer from you, but could you please talk more about the prospects of nanoporous materials um, as a scrubbing material? Sure, Jeff. So as the first of all, even you asked the question about making this longer chain PFAS into smaller chain PFAS is a problem. Yes, it's a big problem too, because they're more carcinogenic and also it's not easy to capture them. That is a problem when you break the CC bond rather than CF bond. So the same thing come to the incineration, why the most of the states in the, in the US are banning the incineration mainly because when you are doing at high temperatures of 800 or 900 degrees centigrade heating of incineration, these PFAS are breaking into smaller chains or the chains that breaking the CC bond breaking happening a smaller uh, uh, fluorocarbon or PFAS molecules in the gaseous form, which is a big problem. So based on our experience in the material design, the pore engineering, the material engineering uh, expertise in PNL, we developed the material that can capture gaseous phase PFAS. This specifically started when there was a uh, there, there was a problem of and uh, there was a problem or contact from someone uh, uh, capturing the PFAS from the ocean surface. That was a big bigger problem in that space. So um, that also co correlating with the incineration where the PFAS are coming in a gaseous state. 
So based on our expert experience on the different kinds of fluorocarbon adsorption, C1, C2, C3, and the C4, all these four different uh, carbons with a fluorine, we could we were able to generate a unique database of the materials that can selectively take capture this gaseous PFAS or gaseous fluorocarbons. So why can't we in, uh, envision using these materials in, as a uh, in, in a smokestack where we are using incineration and capture all of the PFAS and uh, like uh, as Kurt mentioned the condensation afterwards so kind of those kind of a thing so that you will uh, the incineration can be restarted without any problem so our intention is to use the materials various nanoporous materials and uh, you may ask why can't we use carbons carbons can be used but carbons have a low surface areas and low selectivities and low tunabilities. So the nanoporous materials, what we are working as a metal organic frameworks, nano, uh, covalent organic framework, zeolites, and other uh, even carbons with a hierarchical porous, car porous carbons, all those things, they have a high surface areas, almost 10 times, 20 times, 15 times sometimes, the surface areas, the, tuna, the, the pore, pore volumes, all those things tuning towards the specific capture of these gas, gaseous molecules so that you have a humongous space inside a nanoporous material. In that way, what happens is that if instead of using uh, actuated carbon a kilogram on the uh, smokestack uh, of incineration, just you can use 100 milligrams or small amounts so that you can uh do not to have a, a burden the second thing is that you may ask again the question of the cost yes actuated carbons are very cheap like maybe ten dollars or less than ten dollars a kilogram or pound so originally the MOFs or these materials are very expensive like 10 years back it's like thousand dollars at ten thousand dollars per kilogram but because of our various other technologies that utilizing the MOFs or these nanoporous materials for other applications we developed methodologies for the bulk production of these materials, nanoporous materials, MOFs especially. And we could able to have a patenting and licensing those options where now we are in a position and discussion with uh, like companies like big companies like Sigma Aldrich, BASF, or these companies who are producing the materials, they are helping us to get these materials less than $50 per kilogram. That is our plan. So if you are considering $10 of actuated carbon with a $50 of a material, nanoporous material with the enhanced, like 10 times enhanced absorption capacities, I don't see a problem or, uh, and, and uh, this is $20, $50, I'm talking about the least amount, uh, least production level. If you increase the production level, it will go further down. So bringing to close to actuated carbon price maybe. So uh, the nanoporous materials definitely help in uh, enhanced adsorption and selective adsorption of these PFAS molecules in gaseous state as well as in the liquid state too. Overall, that is the, uh, that is our uh, work so far. Yeah, the versatility of those materials um, is very interesting. Uh, I was talking about nanoporous materials rather generically, and you talked about um, some of the specific categories. You mentioned MOFs or the metal organic frameworks. Um, that actually brings us to another question that's come in, and it, the question is, do the metal organic frameworks conduct electricity? But before you answer that, maybe you could give us an overview on what a metal organic framework is. 
So metal organic frameworks are the family of the same nanoporous materials like zeolites, where the zeolites are silica, oxygen, and alumina, where these are our metal organic frameworks are metals connected with organic linkers. So metals in the form of a cluster, and uh, between the two metal clusters, an organic linker is there. So because of very vast organic chemistry and a lot of uh, uh, periodic metals in the periodic table, there is a humongous number of uh, metal organic frameworks available at this point of time, say 50,000 different MOFs are available. So hypothetically, more than 100,000 different MOFs can be possible. So these are the nanopore uh, metal organic frameworks. And uh, the question is that, what MOF you want for what application? So the same MOF A may not be helpful for uh, absorption of PFAS, but it may not be it may be helpful for uh, different absorption or catalysis or some sensing. So every MOF has its own specific roles, right? And depending upon the metal, depending upon the functionality on the metal as well as the organic moiety, one can tune the MOF for a specific application. So we have developed not only MOFs but covalent organic frameworks, taking out completely metal inside, but only organics instead of the simple polymers. These are same polymers, but uniform porous, porous polymers or amorphous polymers, a structured polymers that can be used for uh, adsorption or separation applications. So you ask the question of conductivity. Yes, there are lots of conductive MOFs are available and uh, that can be useful for uh, the applications where the electrical conductivity or thermal conductivity originally the MOFs are non-conductive more uh, more, iso more 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 kind of a insulators mainly because the organic linker and metal cluster are, uh, are covalently bonded with single bond cc bond so that makes more material more insulator but that is, as I said, there are 50,000 or 60,000 MOFs are available. There are materials, MOFs that can conduct a little bit of current. Now, I cannot say fully conductive, but like a, uh, other carbon materials, but they can be made as a conductive thermally as well as electrically. So it, some of the metal organic frameworks can be made to be, let's say, partially electrically and thermally conductive, okay? Um, Okay, yeah, I think that was a great question um, and a great answer to that question. So thanks for elaborating on the variety and the number of um, nanoporous materials. I had, I had glossed over that and it was important to cover, um, again, the variety and the number of them. Um, okay, <clears throat> let's see, I'm checking for more questions. We don't have any questions in from the audience at this time, but again, please submit your questions. Um, We've got about 23 minutes left in our scheduled session, and <clears throat> that takes us, I think, to my next poll question. Um, so Jeannie, if you could please bring up the next poll question. <clears throat> so this ties back to something we just discussed. Uh, hopefully it's not a loaded question, but monitoring of PFAS occurrence and migration should complement treatment and remediation solutions. Um, so you know, how would you rank monitoring and the occurrence of migration of PFAS relative to just treating and remediating it? Uh, would you agree they're on, uh, you know, a comparable plane? Okay, so the results are in. Um, uh, 
again, most of the audience agrees or strongly agrees that uh, this combined approach of um, monitoring PFAS occurrence and its migration is uh, a part of the, a solution along with uh, treatment and remediation. 18% um, of the audience disagreed, uh, so that's an interesting result. Um, I, I guess if I worded the question a different way, I would want to know where um, the audience uh, would put their emphasis, whether, especially the people who disagreed. Would you put your emphasis on uh, monitoring occurrence and migration, or would you put your emphasis on just you know treating and remediating PFAS? So if you disagreed or strongly disagreed, feel free to um, put your thoughts into the chat. Um, we can close that poll, Janie, and we'll go on to uh, the next portion of the session here. So Jeff, I can, can I answer this actually, this uh, interesting, uh, interestingly, 18% of the people say disagree, but uh, I want to understand why, but uh, that is actually a strongly agreeable thing because uh, I just want to answer there, maybe other, others can chime, uh, chime in. Uh, the monitoring is very, very important because when you have a monitoring tool that can be implemented together the remediation technologies, one can see the mapping of the PFAS, where it is coming from. If you, for example, if you look at a river uh, bed from start, where it's starting from and to end, once you see the monitoring where it is starting from, whether it's close to the cities, where the industries are producing more, where what kind of uh, sources are coming. So monitoring is really, really important for uh, remediation technology. That's what my personal opinion. Maybe others can chime in. Well, thank you for uh, jumping in and, and talking about that poll question, Radha. I would agree with you. Um, I, I think they're mutually important. You know, we need to monitor um, and identify where PFAS is, where it's going, but we have to continue to pursue uh, these technologies to treat it and deal with it. Um, as I noted, perhaps I could have worded the question better. If you disagreed with that statement, I'd be curious to know um, if you would put your emphasis on, you know, monitoring or if you would put your emphasis on treatment and remediation. And I think we're getting, um, some responses here. Uh, let's see. Emphasis on occurrence and monitoring as treatment and remedial solutions are still not well understood or cost effective, and its widespread nature allows for the high chance of recontamination. Okay, thank you for responding. Um, okay, I've it will, let's see, do we have anything else coming in? Nope. So I want to switch gears to some general topics, I'm trying to connect a few themes, and we'll be uh, looking to wrap up. So we've got about 18 minutes to go in our scheduled time. So this is for all the panelists. Um, so PFAS impacted water may contain co-contaminants, you know, such as petroleum hydrocarbons at a fire training area where, or where fuel fires occurred, you know, where HFFF was used. Um, chromium or other metals may be co-contaminants, uh, for instance, where PFAS was used as a mist suppressant in metal plating. Uh, we see 1,4-dioxane in complex matrices from landfills, uh, co-occurring with PFAS. So could you please discuss implications 
of treating PFAS impacted water that contains these co-contaminants? And I think that's a fair question for you know, ex situ or in situ applications. Who wants to jump in first? Yeah, I can. Go ahead, Radha. So uh, the, this is called the selectivity of the material. So selectivity is very important, especially from nanoporous materials perspective, the selectivity is very, very important. Not only for the capture, but also sensor. If there is a lot of contaminants, co-contaminants, uh, it is very tough to identify the material. So for that, what, what we have done in the materials perspective is that we have chosen the CF bond in the uh, PFAS and uh, uh, SO bond or CS bond for sulfur containing PFAS and the COOH groups for the uh, uh, acids, acid containing PFAS. So some kind of a, a tag we need from the PFAS molecule so that the material can specifically and can selectively can choose this material in a, in a contamination. Say for example, these are the few contaminants you mentioned, 1,4-dioxane or, or, or like other chromium, but there are so many other contaminants possibilities there in the leachate, industrial leachate, maybe groundwater, and different, from different places we have different co-contaminants. So uh, instead of like choosing others, so we have to choose this PFAS molecule specifically. How can we tag this specifically these PFAS from the contamination? So we have a methodologies to selectively and sensitively choose these PFAS molecules from nanoporous materials. Thank you, Radha. Um, I'm going to pick on Suzanne next because I think you had mentioned um, co-contaminants in one of your prior responses, Suzanne, and you know, how that can be a challenge for, or just something else that needs to be oxidized or would be oxidized in the electrochemical oxidation process. So could you please speak about the implications mm -hmm. of co-contaminants? Yeah, so with co-contaminants, um, I mentioned earlier that you're applying these uh, fairly high current densities and high potentials that you need in order to break down the PFAS compounds. But in doing that, anything that oxidizes at a lower energy is going to oxidize as well. So you can kind of see that as an advantage because, um, you know, that a lot of these co-contaminants, you, you probably want to degrade those as well. Um, and so like our work with landfill leachates, for example, have high levels of chemical oxygen demand um, and we can, you know, degrade that by like 100% during our, our process. Um, so, so in that respect, it, it could potentially be viewed as an advantage. However, it does take away from the PFAS oxidation. So it, it's going to decrease efficiency for that process. So it's just, it's a question of what your treatment goals are. If, if you really want to hammer the PFAS as quickly and as efficiently as possible, then you don't want co-contaminants in there. But if you're trying to treat a mixture of these things and, you know, if you say, I don't care how long this process takes, then, you know, then, okay, fine. You know, we can just, just treat it until we degrade everything in there. Um, but, you know, that's going to take more energy, more time, um, and it's going to cost more. So, it, it, yeah, it could, it in one sense can be viewed as an uh, advantage and in another sense a disadvantage. Yeah, I like that response, Suzanne. That's where my head was going. Um, it was a very practical response. I mean, contaminated water is contaminated water, and it it you know all needs to be dealt with. And if you have a technology um, that can address it all, but you know might be more energy intensive, say, to address 
all those contaminants, uh, it's still an opportunity to um, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate your response to that because I think you know that's an important way to look at it. Um, Kurt, I'll go to you next, and let's talk about um, you know in the in situ realm where we may have a number of these uh, contaminants in the subsurface. You know, perhaps uh, petroleum hydrocarbon plume, one four dioxane plume, all commingled um, with PFAS. And you know, some things can. Well, I won't. You know, I won't give you my answer, but can you speak to um, those the, those dynamics in the subsurface for an in situ approach? Yeah. So the the way we've been approaching this is to, or one way to approach it is to have um, sequential remedies in situ. So you might have, as an example, a oxidative zone um, followed by an adsorptive zone, or if you have, for example, a chlorinated solvent plume that contains PFAS, um, we've done some work where we looked at the effect of the PFAS on reductive dechlorination. Um, and so the idea is to have uh, a zone where you treat um, perhaps the easier compound to break down, uh, up gradient, and then down gradient, you could have a sequestration uh, zone to capture any residual PFAS that either isn't broken down or is not effectively treated by the whatever reactive process you have that's it's used for um, some other co-contaminant like dioxane or chlorinated solvent, either chemical or biological. So that, that's how we're approaching it now. Um, but hopefully, you know, we'll have at some point we'll have selective reactive materials that can break down PFAS. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Radha is working on tuning those uh, nanoporous materials for us, but. Uh, uh, I, that's a good response. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. So, Sarah, I don't want to leave you out. Um, how does uh, plasma deal with complex matrices and perhaps multiple contaminants in that medium? Thank you. So, well, my answer would be similar to Suzanne's because uh, we're both destructing, uh, destroying PFAS. And, but by nature, I don't think I have a bad news about treating matrix uh, with the co-covenants because plasma is supposed to work as a universal means to tackle all these kinds of contaminants uh, by either highly oxidation species or reduction species too. So theoretically, these co-contaminants could be co-destroyed um, as it takes much more energy to, to tackle the CF bonds in PFAS. Uh, so from recent research, I didn't see negative effects of uh, co-contaminants co on PFAS removal uh, by plasma. But of course, each process has to be um, optimized for PFAS destruction focused um, but I mean there is also potential to optimize the same time removing this contaminants by plasma with more research work so okay well thank you Sarah um, and you know one thing I'm thinking of that we talked about is you know some of these concentrating technologies uh, again getting you know not scaling up the process but scaling down uh, what needs to be treated um, I guess that could be somewhat of a complicating factor if you know if you can concentrate PFAS in a small volume, but if it's co-contaminated with something else and you can't um, 
you you can't concentrate the other contaminant down, then you're still left with a volume of uh, water, for instance, to deal with. Although then maybe it's uh, maybe there's another technology available that could treat a large volume of water with another uh, chemical contaminant. Just thinking out loud there, and I'll go. So we've got about nine minutes left. I'm going to go to our next general topic. Um, you know, we've talked a bit about the regulatory interplay here. Um, uh, you know, and Suzanne, I think you said that you know that can make for a moving target. You know, we talked about um, how you know the the implications of PFOS and PFOA being listed as hazardous substances under CERCLA when that process goes through. So, next question: How adaptable are PFAS treatment technologies or your PFAS treatment technologies to changing regulatory requirements, new toxicology data, um, or even newly identified PFAS. I think we've touched on a number of these points throughout, um, but maybe we could, you know, wrap wrap up, um, you know, this dynamic. Just talk about the dynamic situation of changing regulations, new toxicology data, and you know, newly identified PFAS. Um, in how adaptable your technologies um, might be to that. Anyone want to take that one? That's a tough one. I, I can answer. You can go first. Um, Please. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with the, the changing regulations, it seems it, in general it's going from, you know, regulating the C8 chains to then including some of the the shorter chains and so for us like i mentioned with the um electrochemical oxidation in the process you're you're doing chain shortening so you know over time you know we'll see an um an increase in some of the shorter chains and then those eventually go back down again and then it just it just kind of cascades from there um so with the the really short chains um so the c4s for example those take the longest and um, that's due to the fact that our solution might have some C4 chains in it already, and then at the same time, we're generating them during the process. But at a certain point, you do start to see those go down. So it just goes, goes back to, again, the time that it takes um, in order to degrade these things. And um, uh, after uh, meeting Radha and, and, and listening to him, you know, this goes back to having the selectivity, you know, can you pull out, you know, the specific compound that you're trying to treat um, and then kind of tailor your solution to to tackle that specific chain? I think that that would be a way to, to move forward um, in order to improve efficiency for our specific process. So, Suzanne, with the electrochemical oxidation, is it a matter of residence time? Is it a matter of the current density or um or some balance of the two yeah it's it's both yeah and it, it, it it's really um with the c4 compounds you you may have some in there to begin with and then you're also uh through the uh, um uh, oxidation process you're generating those so a lot of times what we see actually is that for a period of time in your experiment, you'll have just kind of a constant level of those C4 compounds because you're doing you're doing both things. So you're degrading some, but you're also generating some at the same time. So you're almost at like a steady state at that point. But then once you get past the point where you're 
um, generating C4s from degradation of the longer chains, then you'll start to see that total um, concentration decrease. Okay. So, yeah. I want to, so we've got five minutes left. I'm going to turn this question around and say, and we've still got a couple audience questions I want to get to, um, but you know, there's you know some regulatory criteria out there or proposed health protective criteria, um, you know, that are approaching zero or non-detect. Um, so, do you see technology improvements driving more stringent regulations, where the improvements of the technology, you know, the the criteria now become about best available technology? Um, do you see, so instead of trying to keep up with the regulations, do you see your, the improvements in your technology starting to dictate what the regulations should be? I think it's a very tough problem, tough uh, answer, tough question to answer. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is that the technologies uh, are really helpful for uh, the, and the and combining technologies are always helpful to cope up with the regulations on the PFAS space, I hope. Okay, I, and I would, you know, I, I could see that happening, especially as some of the proposed health protective criteria are getting lower and lower. Um, you know, as we strive to develop technologies to achieve those, uh, the technological advances start to drive the regulations. Um, yeah, an example, an example I can say that when we started this uh, PFAS work, uh, many states are still saying 50 parts per trillion is the limit. But now many states are reduced to 10 parts per trillion concentration. So we have to think about the material that can go further below, right? Yep. Um, so I want to get to an audience. I want to make sure I cover the audience questions here. Um, so we have a question, can you give an example of a concentrating technology? So I'll field that when I was speaking about concentrating technologies and uh, as a generality, uh, but a few that come to mind are surface active foam fractionation or SAF, um, your reverse osmosis that has a reject water that needs to be dealt with as a concentrate um, or cases where ion exchange resin um, are regenerated uh, and have a, a brine or a regenerate that needs to be dealt with. So those are some examples that come to mind for me. So hopefully that is a satisfactory answer. Um, I think, let me make sure I've got all the questions covered. So I think that covers all the audience questions. Uh, that almost takes us to the scheduled time. So I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up this podcast. Uh, I wanna thank the audience uh, for joining and participating in the great questions. I appreciate you participating in the poll questions. That was very illuminating. And another big thank you uh, to our guest innovators. I know you put a lot of time in the prior episodes and participating in this one. I thought it was really fruitful. I uh, see a lot of uh, themes and ideas that can be connected from all your great research. So hopefully uh, together we've advanced the science a little bit. And thanks again. And that concludes our season one finale of the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale, reminding you to never say forever. 